there are secrets out there, guys, performance marketing secrets, and knowing just one or two of them can light up your funnels. Let's go. This is Performance Marketing Insiders. I'm Chris Mechanic. Join me as we go deep into the secrets of the world's elite marketing minds. Performance Marketing Insiders is sponsored by Web Mechanics, the AI-driven performance agency that makes you smarter. Welcome everybody to another episode of Performance Marketing Insiders. I'm super excited today uh, for our guest who is um, a speaker, an author, a storyteller, a top tier marketer, a thought leader who's committed to helping companies make uh, money and grow by developing both proper systems and strategies. He's currently a senior technical product marketing manager at Treasure Data, uh, which is a which is an exciting company with a great product. Um, welcome to the show, Zach Wenthe. Chris, thank you for having me. I'm I'm really excited to be here. I've been kind of binging on all your podcast episodes, so I'm 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 hoping I live up to the to the hype. Absolutely, man. Where are you joining us from geographically? So I live in Bettendorf, Iowa, which is right on the Mississippi River, um, kind of Iowa-Illinois border and, and a couple hours outside of Chicago. Awesome. Well, I am stoked to get into it with you, Zach. You know that we're all about secrets here. We believe that just knowing one or two little things can, can really change the game uh, for a lot of marketers and marketing programs. So tell us, what's one of your biggest secrets to success? Yeah. So Facebook, Google, all the walled gardens they don't want you to build your own first-party data strategy. They don't want you to have your own data because it benefits them because they can just sell their data to you. Yeah. So um, break that down a little bit. You know, If you are entirely dependent on them, right? they can charge you more, they can lock you in, they can make you, you, know, you de- dependent on their strategies, their black box kind of algorithms. And so... You know, as a performance marketer, you need to really kind of take control, and and there's yeah. so much opportunity to uh, to do that. So yeah, break free so of the dependency. Let's unpack that just a little bit because when we're in Google or when we're in Facebook, we're running ads, we're getting data back. You know, like we see click through data, we see some anonymized audience files, we see you know like there's you know just data all over that platform. What do you mean exactly by? Yeah. So when you think about it, you know, there's, there's kind of two ways you can go about, you know, your ad targeting, right. Or, or just, you know, campaigns and funnels in general. One is you can go out and say, I know who I think my audience is. And I'm going to go to, let's just use Facebook. I'm going to go to Facebook. I'm going to put in some demographic details. I might put yeah. in some interest targeting, whatever. Like and, then, and then, or- yeah, like soccer, yeah. you know, age range, whatever. Go find me these people. That's great. And it's good if you are just getting started. Reality, though, is when you try to scale that, what happens when you want to go find that audience on now TikTok, right? So TikTok's blown up. You you have an 18 to 34 audience that you want to find on TikTok. Now you've got to go use TikTok's definition of those people. It's mm-hmm. not always the same. And so you're not necessarily talking to the same people. You don't have the ability to, to kind of move your audience around and and using the Gary V model of like, Hey, follow attention where it's at. Right. Like mm-hmm. you can't, you can't move with, with these audiences where as if you actually are collecting your data and marketers have been talking about this for years, this isn't like a new concept, right? Everybody said, Oh, you have to own your list, own your list. Yeah. You know, for email marketing, it's that, but beyond, right. So start to collect things around, you know, interests and demographics and psychographics so that now you can build those audiences, send them to Facebook and say, go find me these people. I want to go upsell, cross-sell, you know, and 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 whatnot. So a lot of Facebook and a lot of Google is really focused on the idea of like acquiring that first customer. Mm-hmm. But it's expensive, it's time consuming, it's volatile, right? Because we saw in, when iOS 14.5 came out, you know, all of a sudden start all sorts of targeting change, people, you know, the sky was falling, the world's ending. Yeah. You know, when when Google finally, you know, decides to eliminate third-party cookie tracking. Same thing's going to happen, right? It's going to be the end of the world, and then we'll figure it out. We'll come up with a new plan. But if you can control your own lists, you're going to be in a position to be able to ride that wave. Yeah. So Google, Facebook, Amazon, the walled gardens do not want you to own your data outright because right. they want to sell you, you know, their data files. So what is the 
the antidote to that? Like, what is, you know, what, what, what are some good steps that a marketing team ought to take to get more toward, you know, that promised land of owning your own data, owning your own lists? Yeah. So, I mean, you can start small, right? Basic concepts of, you know, we, we talked about email marketing, having your, having those emails, but starting doing surveys, start collecting information about your interests or your, your, your customer preferences beyond just that they open our email or that they yeah. want this things, right? So being able to get information because the one thing marketers should never do is argue about who their ideal customer profile is. And yet mm-hmm. we all do, right? We all have a, a, a version of the customer in our head that we think is reality. Yeah. And then they add, if you actually interview your customers, they might be very, very different. And some of our customers are have gone through that transformation. They've thought they knew what they were, who they were targeting. And when they actually gathered all the data and brought it all together, it was this whole other world. And so bringing that together and getting more information, start with an email list, start with your SMS, get that, what they call zero party data, which is just a fancy word for data that your customers have actually given you, right? Through surveys, through feedback, through preferences, centers, or, or whatever, and start bringing it together. And if you're bigger, you may need a platform like a CDP or a data warehouse or something to, to manage all of that. But just you know, know your size, know where you are, know where you, where you fit in the organization and, and, and just start to collect the data. Um, totally. Yeah. yeah. And it reminds me, are you familiar with Ryan Levesque or Quiz mm-hmm. Funnels? Yes. And ask, ask. Like the ask formula. Yeah. It reminds me of that. When, whereby uh for anybody that's not familiar so ryan levesque uh, is an author he's got this this framework that he uses called ask and it's essentially like a quiz based conversion pathing mechanism that's designed to generate uh data signals like as as folks go through the process we we refer to those as data signals or or ioqs indicator of quality but like if we're so like let's just Let's continue on the soccer path. So, like, let's let's say that we sell soccer balls, and we we want to get in touch with you know people that like soccer and buy soccer balls. And normally, we would send folks to like an e-commerce experience, or you know, to something directly about soccer balls. Like, what's an example that that we might be able to, whereby we might be able to like solicit some some additional data like what we're talking about here that we could then own and redeploy. Sure. So, okay. So soccer ball. So let's say, you know, you have an audience who's buying, but there's probably some pretty big variations within your audience there. So you have school systems who are buying soccer balls for the entire, all the sports teams and all the, uh, you know, all the schools and whatnot. That's, that's, you know, audience A. Audience yeah. B is coaches. They buy a couple soccer balls, right? And then they buy them for, you know, their team and and whatnot, but they buy them often. And then you have, you know, maybe soccer parents, right? Who are buying mm. one ball at a time, maybe two a season. Yeah. I don't know if you're on a traveling team, maybe it's, maybe it's more than that, but you know, less frequent, less often. If you can even just identify what bucket you're in right now, you know, the type of offer you can, you can target your creative slightly differently to talk to those different people. And you're going to start to do things like not annoy the soccer parent by constantly running a soccer ball promotion every month to them when they, they bought one for the season, they're not going to buy one again. Right. right. So you can save your, your ad targeting and, and spend money on the school system. Who's going to buy a thousand soccer balls and focus on, you know, focus on them because they're doing volume and they might need some more that, you, you know, some athletic director, right? So he may need to have seven, eight, 10 ads put in front of him before he notices you. Cause he's got a lot, you know, a lot of other things going on and soccer's, you know, balls are not the first thing he's, he's looking at. So right. even simply just knowing what, like what bucket those people fall into uh, immediately allows you to, to tailor your spend, tailor your advertising based on the lifetime value, based on the predictive you know, value that, that you, you believe that that audience group will go. And then you can layer that down from there. Right. So parents in the North, you know, come fall, right. Fall people, a lot of play fall soccer, but there's a point where it gets cold. They're not playing outside anymore. So selling them a bunch of, you know, soccer gear, weather might not, you know, align. Maybe you switch to, you know, practice gear or indoor gear, whatever, you know, whatever other alternatives. So just even geographically, breaking yeah. those things down. So yeah, it just, it allows you to create 
much more meaningful segments of an audience. Mm. Um, and the funny thing is, is customers and consumers are willing to tell you this information. Like we yeah. just don't ask. We don't ask enough. Um, you, we've we've gotten so excited about the idea that hey, we can figure out who they are through click path and signals and things that they're doing, and like we can make these personalized assumptions. When you probably could have just asked them right on the front page, like what are you, what, you know, what's your interest, and then from there on, that's data you can use to uh, improve your all of your campaigns. That's an amazing example. And folks, we did not script this ahead of time. Like Zach's quick on his feet. I just threw soccer balls at him <laughs> randomly. Uh, but you bring up a really good point is that like you have certain segments of your audience that are much higher value and or they will transact more frequently and or um, you know, they might have different types of needs depending on what time of year it is. So that's an amazing example. And then in your world, like would you say, okay, so we're gonna we're gonna bucket these individuals, we're gonna collect, you know, this data to understand those buckets. Would your play be mostly to retarget to the non-converters or to then like build audience models off? Or like what do you do with that data, I guess, once you have collected it? Once you've collected it, yeah. I, I mean, I think it opens up a whole lot of things, right? So it does allow you to then you know, one, let's just talk the walled gardens, right? It allows you to move from walled garden to walled garden, right? Because I can mm -hmm. take that PII information that I have and I can say, okay, this is campaigns that we're working on Facebook, but now I'm going to go target soccer parents on TikTok, right? And I want to go use some ad targeting and I know what my information is, but I can also upload my list there. So now mm -hmm. you're starting to create that omni-channel experience, right? So you can start yeah. to show up more often, you know, kind of signal through the noise, if you will. Um, so simple things like that, but then again, yeah, it's that layering who spent last year, um, but hasn't spent yet this year, right. In the soccer parent category, well, mm -hmm. we should be targeting them, right. Cause it's time for another soccer ball, um, yeah. or the athletic, you know, so you can start to add on to, because, you know, the old trope, right. It, it costs more to, to acquire a customer than it does to retain one. The reality is, is, I mean, we know that's true. We get really excited about getting new customers and growing and 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 kind of brute force in the last couple of years. The economy's been so good, and you know, people have been on kind of a buying spree. That's changing, right? That's that's shifting now. And so, maintaining and growing your existing customer base is going to be much more important, and doing it economically, right? So you're not yeah. just brute forced, you know, ad spending your way through retention. But targeting people who are in the mode to buy, have a likelihood to buy, targeting them on a channel that's more cost-effective, right? If they're an existing customer, start with email before you do paid advertising, right? So use a, a journey flow to say, let's start with our, our own channels before we move to a, a paid channel. Uh, yeah, you know, and that's a really good point. I mean, even if you're using your first-party data for exclusion purposes... Because like you don't want to waste your money advertising to people who just bought a soccer ball. Absolutely, suppression is one of the biggest ways to drive efficiency. Um, you know, not just people who just bought, but you know, you know, follow on right. So they don't buy; they buy once a year. Well, now you've got twelve months of of exclusion that you can you know target something else to them um, instead yeah. of just another soccer ball. That's awesome, man. So, hey, I want to talk a little bit about treasure data uh, and and your role there. I'm curious about your your pains, gains, jobs to be done, just like what you're experiencing there. Uh, but you've been at this for a long time. You've got a really impressive track record. Uh, let's just for for um, everybody listening here, give us like a brief chronology of your career. Like, how did you get into the scenario that you are now? And I'm sure. also curious about your book, 76, 76 and a half ideas and a half. to kickstart your marketing. Yep. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So my background, you know, is I, I've always been a marketer. Um, you know, I, 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 I went to, actually I went to school thinking I was going to go into theater, um, because that's what I did in high school and I liked it and I enjoyed it. And then I realized, I can't make any money doing this. I'm not that good yeah. an actor. I just enjoy it, right? And so as I started to kind of understand like what do I enjoy? Well, it's it's cre it's the creative side and it's the you know the thinking of new things and and you know trying out, you know, and characters and I I kind of landed in marketing and I realized 
well, this is the business, you know, this is the business equivalent of theater, right? Is it, it, is like you're kind of creating these characters and these stories and you know, and this creative element, and you can make money doing it, right? And and so, you know, as as a as a young broke college kid, that was kind of like, hey, that this is kind of cool. And so, you know, I started in there and I I was a marketer for a while and then um kind of transitioned into consulting and I got to work with amazing brands all over, you know, all over the place, uh, you know, Walmart, nationwide insurance, FedEx office. Um, Dr. Pepper Snapple. I mean, just just very cool companies doing you know a broad range of things, and it and it really kind of opened my eyes to a lot of um, you know things that a everybody's dealing with the same stuff. Everybody's you know the same the same kind of core you know problems, right? We need more customers. We need to sell them more stuff. We need to to, to manage our risk. We need to spend less money doing it. You know, it's all of the same. It's all of the same underlying factors just done differently depending on the industry or the vertical and the, you know, the, the method is, is different. So I ended up becoming, you know, doing consulting for, you know, um, for quite a while, almost 10 years, and then kind of made the pivot to, uh, to the product world and came over into what we call customer data platform, um, which is marketers, you know, need all of this data in one place and it needs accessible and, and, and data warehouses are great. And they're an amazing tool for a technical person, but for a marketer, it locks the data away, right? It it makes it really hard because you're running, you have to run queries or you have to do all sorts of, you know, data engineering kind of stuff. And, you know, in marketing really their goal and, and, you know, as, as coming from the marketing background, it's like, I need to be nimble. I need to trust my data, but I also would want to stop having these like, I have to pull data and then I have to do a bunch of like the worst tool for marketers, but the best tool that everybody leans on is Excel, right? It's like, right. oh, I have to pull this and now I'm going to do something in Excel and I'm going to, I'm going to make it work and I'm going to build all these calculations and, you know, it's insecure, it's painful, it, you don't want to share it, you know, and now when you lay, layer in privacy and, and all that. Um, so I get really excited about this idea of like, how do we bring together all of this data and, and, and customer data platforms were, you know, picking up steam in the market. And, and, and so I, I joined and this is, um, you know, an area where I think we've gone from the world where marketing bought hundreds of point solutions to now they're like, now what do we do? Like, what do we, how do we bring all this information together? And that's really what treasure data does. And that's what the customer data platforms do is bring all of those data sources, email, transactional, behavioral, click path apps, you name it into a single source we create that one unified record. So we know it's not, you know, the email version of Chris and the SMS version of Chris and the loyalty platform of Chris, right? It's mm-hmm. it's like Chris. And and we have all that information together in that um, you know, in that single profile. And now you can do things with that, right? You can you can drive understanding and insights, you can activate those out to make those all of your traditional channels smarter. Um a lot, just a lot of cool ways that the marketers can can kind of level up their game. Yeah, so that's really interesting. So you knew that you were you were going to be a marketer in college, which is early, I think, for most people. For most people, like it seems like most folks stumble into marketing like a few years out of college. So you kind of knew it. I like the analogy that you make to theater and the way that you think about the creative uh, aspects of it. And it's cool that you're now into what I would consider to be kind of a, one of the more technical aspects, which is like data, data management, CDP. Like there's a lot of technical um, things that go into that. Talk to me about CDP. There's a lot of confusion in the market right now. It's like, is it the same as CRM? Is it the same as a data warehouse or yeah. data lake? Like, is it like, where does it sit? Um, and I think that that needs to be maybe peppered a little bit with like what types of companies you are. Sure. Like I'm curious, like is CDP only for for massive companies, or could small companies also use CDP? Yeah. But first, but first, let's talk about like where does CDP actually sit in the stack from your perspective? Sure. So I, I think you got to think of CDP. Well, so there. To add to the confusion, right? There's 150 plus CDP vendors in the marketplace right now, and they all have kind of a different take on it. Some of them, you know, are more of a what they call a data pipeline, which is really just around moving information from point A to point B. Yeah. Um, treasure data, we we fall into the category of what we call or what what the analysts call kind of a smart hub. So the idea is we sit at the center of your stack of your marketing stack, 
with the goal of saying we're bringing in you know all of those different sources we're adding information we're enriching those profiles and then we're activating that data out to either your ad channels back out to those those systems like your your marketing automation system making them smarter so the goal is to take now now your marketing automation system can have you know, transactional data, behavioral data, enriched demographic data. Maybe you buy, you know, you, you go to an axiom or somebody and buy some psychographic information and, and you want to layer that in. All of that with the goal of now we're all talking about the same person, right? So we're not having the proxies. That's that's the biggest challenge I think in marketing is like, well, if the email team's targeting this, but we want to do some personalization on our website, like we have to go find a, a, a proxy in that rule system that allows me to th- theoretically target the same person, right? And so yeah. you're you're doing a lot of like translation even within your own systems. And the CDP, really the promise and the opportunity for the CDP is to eliminate that. So you can say, I want to target Chris in my email. And when he lands on the website, we're going to show him you know, uh, this version of the website, right? You're, you're a soccer parent. So we're going to show you the soccer parent version of, uh, you know, of the website instead of showing you the athletic director version of the web, you know, the website. Um, so that's, that's the idea. And that's the goal is to, is to bring all of that, um, all of that first party, second party, third party data together into a usable method that a marketer now can go out. They don't have to go to the data engineer and say, Hey, Pulling a list of people who bought last year, who haven't bought this year, who spent, you know, over a certain threshold of money. And, you know, somebody goes into a data warehouse, runs that, you get it back and you're like, well, okay, that audience is too small or that audience is too big. Let's let's refine that. Let's adjust it. You know, and, and it takes weeks to do that. Right. So the idea of the CDP is self-serve. You could go in, you can build that audience yourself. Uh, you can kind of play around and, and kind of get real-time feedback and 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 really be smarter, you know, with, with your, you know, with your marketing. And so um, that's the goal, right. And, and, and who's it for, uh, I think was the second part of the question. It doesn't, you don't have to be a massive company. I would say there's a, there's a sweet spot where once you get to a certain point, as long as you have a, enough data that you have systems that aren't talking to each other, right. So beyond um, if you're just an e-commerce company and you're just running a web, one website, and one email system, you probably don't need a CP, right? It's probably, right. you can probably, you know, like if Shopify out. is your everything and you're doing a million dollars a year, like you probably don't need CDP. You, you probably don't need it because you can, you can funnel everything through, you know, that, that world and then, and then potentially use some other tools to kind of, you know, stitch things together, put some BI behind it or whatever. But, you know, if you're running multiple brands, right? And now you have five Shopify sites that are all different and you have different people logging in, but you want to understand how is my, like, what is my crossover? What is my, you know, how do I promote people from brand A to brand B? Mm-hmm. Um, and not only do you have your Shopify sites for those five brands, but you have an email platform, you have loyalty program for each one of them. You have some SMS. Now you're getting into the world where bringing all that together and stitching it together has a lot of value uh, because you can say, hey, we're influencing not just, you know, each brand has a million customers, you know, but Oh, the overlap on them is, you know, there's 200,000, 200,000 people kind of overlapped between those three brands, right? Those are our high value, most, you know, most precious customers that we need to treat differently, you know, open it up to customer support, right? So if they're calling into your call center or your ticketing system or whatever, like those are your VIPs, make sure that they get routed to the top of the queue. I mean, so you can start to have those, those changes in process and behavior and and outcomes that that are really, um, you know, meaningful for marketers, and that's where you're getting into, yeah, your mid tier, mid tier, and up kind of, you know, organizations all the way up to obviously your your, your biggest enterprises, and in both B two B and B two C, right? I mean, there anytime you have a mess of data, um, you know, and, and and typically multiple brands, especially multiple geographies, CDPs come in because they can kind of be that that independent broker of of, of systems, so. So I know uh, pretty much notoriously in big tech implementations, there's a lot of excitement during the buying process. Everybody, you know, locks elbows and jumps kind of a thing. Uh, But then inevitably, it's just like most end users are just barely scratching the surface. Even if we look at CR, like even if we look at Salesforce, you know, most Salesforce orgs, they're paying a lot for the, for the, uh, 
licenses and stuff, but they're just using a very small fraction of the total capabilities. I'm curious about what the, so say that I am, you know, not Walmart because Walmart probably already has CDP, but say that I'm like a up and coming Walmart. I'm like Ollie's, you know, yeah, or, or whatever it is, you know, the, the mid tier player. And I'm like, okay, we need CDP. We need to do CDP. What does the implementation and onboarding process look like? Like who all needs to sit at the table? Yeah. So, you know, I think the ones we see and the ones that are most successful, right? And and I think there's kind of two paths, but you know, path A is is you know people kind of buy it in a, in a silo and then they implement a CDP for a specific use case, right? So marketing, we're going to stitch these marketing systems only together, and then they kind of go off and run. the The problem with that is is you end up if you're not careful building your own silo. Right, you're building another silo that you that that you don't. So we really push for this organization, this organizationally kind of you know focused strategy. Yeah. Um, the customer is a customer of the entire company, right? Not just marketing, right? So operations, customer support, sales, all these departments touch the customer in different ways and 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 whatnot. So being able to bring all of them together and say, hey, we're we're creating this enterprise wide customer data platform for your organization, you know, here's the benefit. And then when you get that buy-in very early on, because people can say, oh, wow, yeah, that we absolutely would love our, our, you know, our support reps would absolutely love to see the campaigns that are, that are currently running to our customers. Cause they call in and ask us about it. And we don't know, like we have to like dig through our emails to find, you know, or whatever. Cause that happens way too often. Um, yeah. You know, being able to kind of tell them those use cases that gets buy-in and then you say, okay, now, Let's pick the the high value, you know, lowest effort standard tech implementation idea. Like, what can we? Let's get a couple early wins and get the system in place, and then you just have a maturity model, right? You, you're going to grow, you know, crawl, walk, run. So we're going to do some basic. We're going to get the identities stitched together, deduplicated, and 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 resolved into a single profile. Okay, now we're all talking about the same person. Great. Now what we can do? Well, we can focus on lapsed customers. All right, we go on. And so, so then you can kind of, you know, you can kind of go down this path of, of, you know, kind of picking off those things that have been bugging you for years, uh, but you yeah. just didn't either have the resources or the the capability, you know, or or it took too long, it was too hard to do. You start picking off those the, those tactics, and and I think uh, it builds momentum, it builds excitement within the org, and it keeps that like. It keeps that you know, hey, we all jumped in together, um, feeling going because people are seeing those you know those wins and uh, it was well, cool. You just we- sparked a thought because I've historically thought of CDP for like marketing and advertising folks mostly, but the way that you're describing it, I'm thinking about it now as like a hey, there's six records for Chris. There's one in CRM. There's one over here. There's one over here. Inside of CDP lives the most complete record. So I'm wondering, like, so in your world, the, you know, the support reps, like on the front lines that are, you know, Comcast, you call Comcast, like, are they, like, should they be logged into CDP? They, I mean, because yeah. wouldn't that be the most complete record of that individual? Yeah. I so, guess my question is, are they typically logged into CDP or do they still log in? Like when, when you call and they're like, Hey, Mr. Mechanic, I'm pulling up your record. Like, are they logging into treasure data at that point? Or are they logging into whatever other? Yeah. So should they? Absolutely. Um, now, should they be logged into treasure data or treasure data CDP? Not necessarily. So we actually have integrations into a lot of support systems because there's a lot that goes with that call, right? You need you know, your call scripts, you need your response, you know, feedback, you have your knowledge base. There's a lot of other stuff. So if you're using a, you know, a call center application, we can just embed a view right in there so that they can just pull up and see that view, right? So mm, the idea is gotcha. making the data available doesn't necessarily mean replacing the system you have. Um, and I think it. that's a that's a big key for us is, you know, everybody has their favorite tools, sometimes either because it's the right one or because that's just what they have. But we don't want you to replace all of your tech just because you've got a customer data platform. We just want to make that tech smarter. Right, we want to give you data. So whether that's embedding, whether that's passing, you know, you can batch and send that data over. It depends on the system, um, but yes, absolutely, they should be in the CDP um, in some fashion. 
with a view that's appropriate for their role, right? They don't necessarily need all of the detail behind maybe the, the behavioral and the click path and some of those PII information. So they just need the campaigns that they've been targeted or, or whatever's yeah. appropriate for your org. So, um, but yes, that's, a, that's great. That's a great answer. And I'm very impressed by you, man. You're incredibly knowledgeable just on marketing, like your ability to, like, we've talked about different types of businesses, like you're, you know, you're just broadly knowledgeable and deep in certain areas. I can tell too, but you know, that's, I, I, that's the mark of an expert to me when you can just throw something at them and they're like soccer balls, soccer balls. Great. Let's talk about there's the municipalities buying soccer balls. There's the, the school districts, you know? So that's really impressive. That is um, going to be the title card for this podcast. It's just going to be a big soccer ball. So, <laughs> so uh, there's a couple different directions that I'd like to go and I'm curious about, and I want to be cognizant of your time, but just uh, real quickly, I am curious. I know you're, you're, it, uh, your title technically is senior product marketing manager uh, slash product evangelist at Treasure Data, but what's like a typical day in the life for you there? Like, what are you actually doing most of the time? Yeah. So I, I kind of live, you know, kind of two personalities, right? So my product marketing manager is my kind of internally, you know, focused role, right? Where I'm working with our sales teams. I'm working with our pre-sales org to do better demos, to tell better stories, to help them kind of, you know, tighten up their messaging um, just so that, you know, we are in a technical, you know, we sell a technical product, right? And so it's very easy to go down the features and benefits path and get into kind of the technical world, but like we need to speak marketer speak, right? We need to talk to them and we need to understand. So kind of, I help kind of take that background that I have and, and, you know, friends and contacts and, you know, people and kind of bring that down into our, our presentations and our, and our demos and our, you know, soft skills and all of, all of those things. And then my flip side of my personality or my other side is the evangelist side where I'm out in the market, actually doing this having these conversations, doing podcasts. I, you know, I do a lot of speaking at events, uh, you know, trade shows, you know, because twofold one is obviously, you know, we, we, our goal is to get our message out there, but really marketers are my customers and that's what I've done for you. Right. So being able to learn from them, get feedback, it just helps us improve our product. I can take that back. I can talk about, Hey, this is what, this is what people are thinking about. So it allows us to be a lot closer to, um, our customers or our core customers, um, you know, and, and, uh, um, you know, just keep that, that kind of finger on the pulse, if you will, of kind of what's going on because the market's changing so fast and like people are reacting to things so quickly that you can't say, well, this is what, this is, you know, what a marketer told me, you know, a year ago. So we're going with that now, you know? And so it, it is, um, getting out there and just, you know, kind of being in the weeds as much as I can. Yeah. And in terms of changing fast, like things changing fast, what are you foreseeing? Like if you look out, you know, 12 months, 18 months, 36 months, like what are the big topics and issues that you guys are thinking about, solving for, excited about, et cetera? Yeah. So I think the the big change that I think people are waking up to now, and I think it really is going to be a driver for the next, you know, 12 plus months is the reality that customers are in charge now. Right, the customer is in the driver's seat. Uh, brands no longer can say, "Hey, here's my journey. Go buy. Go buy the way I want to sell it to you." Right? The customers, people who were scared during the pandemic of shopping online, aren't scared anymore. People who were, you know, loyal to a brand and then that product wasn't available at brand A, they went out and found brand B, and they were like, "Oh, that wasn't too hard to switch." So, seventy-five plus percent of people switched buying behaviors during during the pandemic. And now when you layer in the economy on top of that, I think consumers have figured out that it's like, I have alternatives. The world is a much smaller place. And so I think that that in the implications of that are just starting to kind of, you know, kind of trickle down into marketing campaigns and, you know, and brands. But I think it's the brands who have conversations with their customers, tell a compelling story, don't just annoy them with a promotion after promotion after promotion, um, are going to be, you know, winners going forward. And then layer into that the fact that if the economy changes, this idea of, hey, just being there was enough to sell, enough to grow, that's not going to be the case, right? We, we know in downturns, people tighten their belts. They may still spend, but they may, but they're, they're, they, they take longer cycles, get longer, even, even consumer cycles, right? Even if I'm going to go to the store, I may you know, wait 
a week in between something. So it's going to shift how um, you know brands have to have that relationship with with their customers, and the only way they're going to be able to capitalize on that is going to be through better understanding of their customer. And that comes with data, that comes with feedback, that comes with asking questions, that comes with talking to them. And so I think that is, you know, this idea of brute force marketing is is definitely something that uh, the next 12 months isn't going to be an option. Um, so, I mean, we're, we're seeing it already in, in, in brands doing layoffs and cutbacks and everything. So. So I sprung the soccer ball example on you. I'll put you on the spot just one more time because I'm curious for an example. Like, can you think of any either of your customers or just any brands that you think are doing a really good job, kind of like collecting the zero party and first party data and and marketing more so with conversations and and real authentic engagement? Um, yeah, yeah. So I, I think you know I, I've I've got a couple actually, and and that are in wildly different industries. So, so let me, let me kind of quickly share both of them. Um, so one is we have a, a company that does, you know, prepackaged healthy meals, right. The ship ship to your door, you know, meals. And when they, when they were bringing all of their data together, they were going through an investment round and the investors were like, who's your, who's your target market? Who's your, who's your core audience? Because if we look at your advertising, we look at your marketing and we think it's the, the marathon runner, it's the, you know, the, the, the biathlete, you know, I mean, whatever, all the, all these kind of core yeah. bike cyclists and, and whatnot. And they're like, well, you know, it's that, but it's also parents and it's also this. And they're like, well, which is it, you know? And, and so they, they, they really went through this effort. They pulled all their data together. They took all their multi-touch attribution reports of like, what, what, what channels are people coming in through? And then they bought in, brought in psychographic and demographic data and they layered it all together and they found out their most valuable customers were not athletes, were not cyclists. They were aging parents. So they were people who either had kids in high school um, or recent empty nesters, right? They're on the go. They, or they don't want to cook big meals, but they still want to eat healthy. Mm-hmm. They were the most loyal and the most profitable customer base that they had. And so when you look at your advertising, when you look at your messaging, nobody was talking to them, but they were buying mm-hmm. regardless. And so- wow. Just shifting, shifting that strategy and thinking about how that impacts their, you know, what their ad targeting looks like. The con- their their big content company. So you know, looking at the blog posts that matter, and they they were able to say, hey, if they saw this blog post, they bought and they bought more. So being able to personalize their website, so it it drove that. So that's a that's a big one. Um, Interesting. And one quick question on that. So you said they brought in the psychographic data. Was that like zero party first party brought it in, or they? layered it on from a third party source. So they did both actually. So because they were healthy meals, they were able to say, Hey, what's your, what's your, what's your eating goals? What do you need? So they were asked, they started doing surveys and then they did go out and buy some, um, they they use Axiom, but they went out and bought some third party kind of psychographic demographic information to kind of append to that first party data that they already collected and said, okay, tell me who Jane is, right? Tell me, tell me more about her. And and so uh, they built that profile. And this is a really dumb question, kind of an offshoot. But how much do you trust or believe in like the third-party data sources? Like, do you find that they're quite accurate most of the time, or are they hit or miss? I think it depends, and I think it depends on the the level of granularity, right? So, I think if you're doing high-level age, lifestyle, class information, it's pretty accurate, right? Because between census data and between so many survey and credit report, I mean, that's pretty easily accessible information, right? If you try to get a lot deeper. I mean, I'm in a trust but verify kind of mode on 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 a lot of those. Um, there's amazing data sources out there, um, but it's sparse, right? So you may be able to get 15% match rate on your, you know, to to your to your database, and so you you, you got to take okay this. The risk marketers make is they take that 15% and then they extrapolate that to the the rest, and that that's where you get noise because it's not necessarily. What is what is true for that fifteen percent is not necessarily true for the other eighty five percent, right? And so right. you have to be careful when you're using that that deeper sparse data to not jump and say, "Well, this is true for everybody." Therefore, you go off in in a direction that that is really only a, a minority. Yeah, you know, like like soccer balls or interest in soccer balls might be a little bit of a flimsy one because it's like I could have been to a website and like looked at a soccer ball for my niece's birthday yeah. or something it, and gotten categorized like that. Exactly. But like is athletic or has, you know, soccer eight or has kids. 
would it's, be would right. Be it's a little more telling, and it's a little more it's a little more stable of a yeah. you know of a result. And so again, a trust but verify test those audiences, run small campaigns, see what kind of results does it does it how does it compare to a control audience. Yeah. Um, I think that's the way you use third party data. Interesting, really interesting. All right, cool. Well, let's zoom out here. This has been an awesome conversation. I've learned a lot, uh, and I am. I'm interested in some implications of this, both for some of our clients and we have like some small and medium sized data clients. Uh, so I'm really interested in some of the applications for, you know, like the smaller and medium sized companies, especially in a B2B world. Like I'd be interested to have maybe a separate conversation for you about like how this might apply in a B2B world, which might be generally lower volume, but really like much larger deals and sure. with many different buying influence, you know, many different people from one individual company. That's a whole nother can of worms for a whole nother day. <laughs> um, but just to wrap things up here, I'm curious just about you personally. So you live out, it sounds like uh kind of midway in Idaho, you said? Uh, in Iowa. Yeah. So, oh, so right. Iowa. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm literally on the Mississippi river kind of right on Iowa, Illinois border. Um, it's where my wife and I grew up here. Um, and our family's here. We've been in Texas up until this summer, we were in Texas for about 12 years, um, you know, in, in Fort worth and loved it, but, uh, um, had the opportunity to come back closer to family, you know, pandemic kind of view taught us like, Oh, maybe we should be closer. Um, yeah. and, and so, and do you have kids? Do have kids. Um, we have one who uh, just graduated high school. She's uh, taking a gap year um, and, and going to start college next fall. And then we have a seven year old and a three year old. So, oh, I wow. I'm exhausted all of the time. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, you must have started pretty young, man. You don't look that old. Yeah. My, so our 17 year old is my stepdaughter, but I've raised her since she was, you know, uh, four. Uh, so, gotcha. um, but yeah, so she's mine still. Um, so what and, do you do? Cause you've got, you know, sounds like a, generally not a stressful job, but you've got a, you know, a big job to do during the day. You've got a big job at night. Like, how do you, how do you maintain balance? How do you blow off steam or otherwise like prevent burnout? Yeah. I, you know, I think that, I mean, honestly, I've been preaching the the value of working from home long before the pandemic. I, you know, I've, I've been a, you know, remote employee for almost six years now. And, and, and honestly, you know, once you get used to it, like it's amazing. Cause I can step away. I can spend some time with my three-year-old during the day for, you know, for, you know, at lunch or whatever, and then I can come back. And so it, it, it eliminates this whole like barrier of, you know, mom or dad gone, you know, at the right. office. And then you have to like come home and switch modes. And so, um, so, I mean, I, obviously that has been a huge, a huge factor. It just, you know, I, I will, I will always carry that, you know, that flag. I travel a lot for work. And so to me, like, that's my opportunity to get away. Like when I, my rule, number one rule, when I'm traveling for work, like I don't work on a plane. Um, I, you know, I know a lot of people, they, as soon as they land on the, you know, on the plane, they pull out their laptop and then, nope, I'm watching a movie. I'm going to relax. It's my time. I put on my headphones. I watch something that, you know, some stupid action movie or whatever. It's just for fun. Uh, or stand-up comedy on Netflix is also my uh, guilty pleasure, you know? And and mm-hmm. um, so I so I use those times to like, you know, I'm I'm working hard at home both, you know, during the day and at night. And so I travel enough that that's kind of where I, you know, I'm like, okay, this is my time in between meetings and presentations and, and whatnot. So yeah, traveling is usually, I think, a stressful experience for most most people. So that's an interesting kind of way to frame it. Yeah, well, and I've been, I mean, when I started consulting, you know, I was the traditional, you know, road warrior for a while where, you know, you'd leave on, you'd leave on a Sunday or Monday to get back on a Thursday and you'd do some laundry and you'd rinse and repeat. And so, you know, you, you get down to the process of like, you know, I have two of everything, right? So I have a toiletry bag that's already packed. I have all my chargers that are already packed. Like I just, I can grab it and go. And so I don't have that stress leading up to, um, you know, work travel that, that I think, you know, some people do. And I just, so then I go and I'm like, this is my, you know, go to dinner by myself um, and I can eat what I want and I'm not interrupted. You know, I mean, it's great. Um, But then when I come home, then I can be engaged and focused in there and and, and not have to, um, you know, kind of, Oh man, I should, you know, have a night out or whatever. Like I can, I can be with my kids. And so it's, it's, it's a great balance for me. That's cool. Yeah. So, um, two more questions for you, kind of in the more fun category. 
or um but first off is if you were to start a side hustle what would that side hustle be so i am i am working on a book again so i so I, we we didn't talk about the first one the first one yeah, was 76 and a half ways to kickstart your marketing and it was totally an experiment in what does self-publishing look like? I, I I kind of put together, I was doing a lot of work with SMB, like very small, you know, solo entrepreneur type things who are like good at their task, but didn't know anything about marketing. Right. And so mm-hmm. I kind of was like, this is just an idea book. Go open to a page, grab one and be like, oh, I'm going to do that. Right. Write a blog post, you know, um, hold an open house. It was just, you know, kind Survey of tactics. Your customers. Survey your customers. Yeah. And so, to me, that was totally an experiment. Now I'm 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 kind of working on a, a bigger kind of book, um, you know, around around storytelling and and storytelling for business, right? So the idea of of you know we all tell stories all day long, but you can actually you know when there, there's a science to it too, right? There's a psychology and a and a, and a uh, you know the take what we do in copywriting, take what we do in you know in in, in persuasive messaging and put it in your stories because when you're giving demos, when you're presenting, when you're giving a sales pitch, the words you use matter. So that would be, I'll call that my side hustle because there will probably be some follow-on stuff at some point in time from that. But And uh, you're working on that already? Or I am. I've, I, no, I've, I've started working on it. Um, it's one of those, like I kind of fit it in, you know, I, I haven't picked a date, um, you know, like authors are like, oh, you have to pick your date. And then you work towards that. And I'm like, yeah, I could do that, but I have kids and I, you know, like yeah. family comes first. So I'm, I'm kind of just writing it when I, right. when I have some inspiration. Like, Try having three kids. Right. Right. Taking 40 plane rides a month or yeah. a year and, uh, working yeah, 60 I, hours. I have not locked myself away in a cabin and, 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 and wrote a book. Uh, although it sounds fun. Uh, I don't have that luxury right now. So yeah. uh, I'm just kind of working on it in between. Well, speaking of books, and this is the last question is like, what are some, some just like really influential reads, whether books or whether thought leaders, just like your top three, like books you would recommend to yeah, other so, marketers. So I will say anything, um, I'll, I'll give two answers in a category or a, a, an author. So anything Malcolm Gladwell, I, I love. And I love anything Malcolm Gladwell in audiobook. I'll go and listen because listening to him tell his own stories is an amazing experience, both from the words, you know, tipping points and, you know, all of those are, are, are amazing books. Uh, but then just to hear how he frames and tells and, and uses stories is a great, um, or those are just amazing listens. Um, so mm-hmm. I find myself going back to those. Um, there's another book that I always, it always stuck with me, um, which was Keith Ferrazzi, Never Eat Alone. And it was about kind of building your brand and your network. And when I was younger, it's like, oh yeah, I'm going to do that. And I didn't, I never understood it. Never really got it until I kind of got into the tech world, um, you know, and it's like, I understood what it meant, but like, I didn't live through it. I was in a startup. We went out of business, was kind of on my own, but yet everybody who was in the go-to-market team was in the same boat. Like we had this amazing network that we kind of all branched out. And now like I figured out like, oh, when I fly to New York, go have lunch with somebody, go do, you know, I mean like, so just, it took a long time for that one to to land and kind of, you know, like filter into my life. But mm-hmm. everybody talks about personal branding these days. And this was a book that was about personal branding that came out 20 years ago. So yeah, um, that that's a great one. Cool. And then the last one is this is an interesting one. So for the psychology and marketing nerds, um, and and it's a this is more of a textbook, but there's a book called The Person and the Situation, and it's by Lee Ross. Um, so the the whole treatise of the book is is a bunch of you know psychology based studies, which is the idea that the situation that a person is in can often dictate how they behave and act way more than the person. Mm-hmm. And it makes sense. Seems logical. We often we talk a lot about people, targeting people, messaging to people, whatever. But understanding like the world they're in, are they at work? Are they at home? Has a much larger influence on on how they react. And and uh, um, not to bore everybody, but one of my favorite studies in it that they talk about is um, they took a bunch of seminary students and they told them they were late for a meeting and they had to had to get across campus very quickly. And half of them 
uh, or the, the audience that you relate, you have to get across campus, go. And they were sent by a person who was playing a homeless person, but a homeless person asking for help. And then they took another group and they said, hey, you're needed across campus. No rush, just get over there when you can, right? The, the people who were in a hurry, were told and had, and they were stressed that they were, that they were late, stopped five, 6% of the time to help the homeless person. Whereas the people who were not in a hurry stopped 75% of the time. Wow. And these are all seminary student, and I might have those metric, those numbers wrong, but it was a significant impact, right? And so the idea is like, these are seminary students. These are people who should be, you know, helping and reaching out and whatnot. So the person put in a situation that was stressful made them change their behavior. And, and I think I'm going probably a lot deeper than you were asking, but the value of that is it changes our, our messaging. It changes our marketing. We have to think about kind of the frame of mind that people might be in, not just who they are. And, yeah. and so um, when you're writing your ad copy or when you're doing your targeting, you know, thinking about that is going to have a huge impact on the success of your funnels and your campaigns. Yeah. And when you're building your quizzes and your surveys and doing your personalization, you know, absolutely. It's like shipping time in an e-commerce world. Like, when would you like this shipped? Like, do you want priority shipping? You need it tomorrow, then you're willing to pay extra. But like, that might be a useful question to know up front. Yeah, exactly. So, really interesting, Zach. Very impressive, man. This this was an awesome interview. I really appreciated it. Uh, if you're listening and you're liking this and you want to um, learn more from Zach and or uh, about Treasure Data check them out at treasure-data.com. Zach, uh, where would you direct folks like if they want to learn more about you? Yeah, you know, connect with me on LinkedIn. Um, you know, find me, Zach Winthe, W-E-N-T-H-E. Um, you know, follow, connect. I'm, I'm, I'm posting regularly, but I love having conversations. Um, you know, a lot of times these podcasts spur a question or two. So uh, if you have one, you know, don't hesitate to reach out. Cool. Love it. Well, thank you very much. As always, please drop us a like, a comment, share it with your friend, uh, and we will see you next time, Zach. Thank you for your time today. And that's a wrap. Thanks for joining us today. For show notes and other episodes, visit us at performancemarketinginsiders.com. This podcast is sponsored by Web Mechanics, the performance agency that makes you smarter, offering AI-driven search, paid social, analytics, and conversion rate optimization for financial services, health, B2B, and SaaS brands that know. Hey guys, exclusive for listeners of this podcast, you can get a performance marketing assessment for free. And this isn't some cookie cutter automated report. It lays out detailed, specific things you can do right now to unlock limitless growth and nirvana level personal satisfaction. To claim your free assessment, just go to performancemarketinginsiders.com slash audit and you'll have your customer report within just a few days. 